Well, hey, it's good to be with you. If I haven't met you before, um, I would love to meet you. My name is Mackenzie Matthews. Um, I'm on staff here at Timberline. I work with our young adult ministries. So we have a 20s and 30s ministry and a college ministry, and that's kind of, that's kind of my sphere. Um, I really love what I get to do. I love being a part of this team, and I've been in my role for almost four years, which feels wild and crazy. It's felt real fast to me. I don't know, what do they say? The saying, the weeks are slow, the years are fast, or is it the days are slow? The... Neither here nor there. You understand what I'm saying. It's been a fast four years. All that to say, I love what I get to do. I'm so grateful to get to be with you guys here tonight and would love to meet you after this if I have not had a chance to meet you before. But we are in this series called Questions That God Asks, and we're looking at places that we see God asking questions throughout Scripture, questions for specific people that are also for us. And it's wild to think about just the God of the universe asking human beings questions, isn't it? It's wild. Like, why? Why is it that God might ask questions? There's something about questions. There's something about being asked a question that speaks to us and teaches us in ways that we just, that can't be discovered by merely telling someone something. Like, when I am asked a question, I have a different level of engagement and ownership than I would if you just straight told me something that you think that I needed to know. There's something about questions. It makes us think critically. It's like question-based learning. Let me discover something on my own. That might stick with me. I don't have a very good memory. Fun fact about me. You know, some people tease me about it. But if there's things that I'm like, I don't need that or I don't care to know that, it's just goes right away. I have a dear friend of mine named Hillary, who you're going to have here in a couple of weeks. She's on staff at Timberline, and we always joke about a thing called our inner secretary. Like, if we had an inner secretary, let's imagine a tiny version of you in your brain, and just the space. What would it be like? What would your inner secretary be like? I, Hillary would say, her, it's like an office, right? And it's papers are everywhere, like filled, but she knows where everything is. She's like, I know, it just takes me a second. Where I'm like, I have a couple things labeled important and then a shredder that everything else enters and is quickly gone. But it's, if you ask me a question, if you help me discover something, there's a good chance, there's a chance it might not get shredded. So it's kind of fun to think about what your inner secretary is like. My husband is the middle school pastor here. I think his inner secretary is just playing basketball, just shooting hoops, you know, anyway. It's fun, it's kind of a fun to think about, but Questions, there's something about questions. I think there's also an element of relationship and connection that comes with a question. Do you have anybody in your life who you would say um, is a really great question asker? People who could draw things out of you based on the questions that they ask. I have some dear friends who are, who are gifted at this, where they can get right to the heart of things by the questions that they ask. Usually those folks also tend to be good listeners who genuinely want to hear my heart and hear what's going on in my life. Or they really know me. And you can tell based on the questions that they ask. You know how known you are if someone's like, oh, I had a dream and you remembered and you asked. Or you knew I was afraid of that and so you asked about that. There's something about a question that can reveal how known we are. I think the opposite's also true if you've ever been around people who ask questions but don't really care to know the answer to the question. Like, sometimes questions can be like a, like a greeting. I am guilty of this. I do this all the time. 
Hey, how are you? Good, how are you? Good. <laughs> you guys ever do that? It's a greeting. Hey, how are you? Good, how are you? It's like one quick thing, but I'm not listening. I'm not actually listening, or I might not actually even be good. I just say that. It's like a filler thing. Or if I said, um, hey, how are you? Awful. How are you? I'd be like, I don't know if I have time to listen to that. I don't know if you guys do that. It's a filler thing. Not a genuine question. When I think of people who are really good at asking questions, I actually think of um, Dick and Ruth Foth. I, I just call Dick Foth, so I'll reference that. And he calls me kid, which is so endearing from him. Not from any of you. I mean, not just it, he calls me kid. It feels like he's like my adopted grandpa, and he's just the best. But when it comes to questions, I think Foth is incredibly gifted. He's very good. He's got them ready. And he's genuinely curious, too. When Foth asks me about the street that I grew up on or the games that I played as a kid, like he genuinely wants to know me. And he does that all the time. I've gotten to see him do it all the time. For him, strangers are just like future friends, future friends. But I'm inspired by that. I've been challenged by that. Do I really give space to really listen? That can be hard. But when we're asked a question, we're not just told something. We're invited to participate, to be known, to be taught, to really connect. Questions are powerful. We could all get a little better at asking them, I think. And how merciful and gracious of God to ask questions, to invite us into a back and forth with him. I'm a big fan of this series. This is very creative, Brent. Good job. I hope that you guys have enjoyed it. So tonight we're looking at a rather personal question that's asked by Jesus in the Gospels. It's found in John chapter 5. If you'd like to turn there with me, it's also in your bulletins and it's also on the screen. I put it everywhere for you guys to follow along. Um, John 5, starting in verse 1. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. So right away we get a picture of a pool and kind of like five covered colonnades and a whole lot of people with different ailments. We have blind, we have some with withered limbs, people who are unable to walk or care for themselves in a whole variety of ways. They are sick, they are weak, um, they are struggling. And we don't know, you know what, the, what life is like or what the quality of, li of life would be like for folks with disabilities in this time. We could guess, you know, without modern medicine, without technology, without wheelchairs or walkers or guide dogs, the challenges that face the disabled were significant. And we can't know what the general morale would have been. Again, it's guessing, but I don't know if it would have been all rays of sunshine all the time. Likely, this was a group of people who felt helpless or hopeless, maybe even miserable. And we know this because they probably wouldn't have been here otherwise. Because there's this thing about the pool, there's this belief about the pool was that periodically an angel would come down and the angel would stir up the water and the first person that could get in the water would be healed. It's kind of like a old wives tale of sorts. And people would think, like some people would say, maybe it was a natural spring or something going on in the pool, but it was this belief that it was a healing pool and it was reason enough for them to stay, to watch, 
to wait, to hope. So you can visualize it. A pool, struggling people all around, looking and waiting for something in the water. That's the scene. Verse five, one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. Invalid feels like um, kind of a hard <laughs> translation. It's a tough word. Um, the specifics of his ailment, we don't know. We're not given specifics. We know moments later that he's unable to walk. So he may have been a paraplegic. And we know that he's been in this condition for 38 years, which is a very long time. A long time, nearly four decades, which is a lifetime in this day and age. Literally, the life expectancy in the first century was estimated to be anywhere from 20 to 35. So literally a lifetime. There's a lot of disease, a lot of people didn't survive, I mean, just from childhood. So on top of all of that, the challenges this man faced were significant. If he couldn't use his legs, we can imagine he moved around just using his hands. So it would have been calloused and rough. And if he didn't have control of his bowels, his personal hygiene problems would have been significant. It's likely people would have avoided him. He probably begged for money. He's probably brought there maybe by family. But his disability, for sure, would have been a defining aspect of his life, core to his identity. It's what he'd known. It's the filter with which he'd seen his life. Verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he'd been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Which is the key question that we're unpacking tonight. And how does he respond? Verse 7. Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me get into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat, and he walked. But you're like, crazy. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. Here's the deal um, with the Pharisees. They're very into their tradition. Like oftentimes they cared about their tradition more than they cared about people. Even in this moment, which again, this moment's a huge deal. There's a guy who hasn't been able to walk for four decades. He's just walking around. It's unbelievable. It's miraculous. It's incredible. And the Pharisees are out here just looking at the mat in the dude's hand. Not sure if you could miss the point any more than that. But it gives us an idea. It tells us something about them, just how rigid and laser-focused they were on their tradition. And they intended to charge him, literally convict him, for carrying his mat, which was likely kind of a ploy to scare him and get to Jesus through him. Verse 11, but he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they said to him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Sneaky Jesus. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders, that it was Jesus who had made him well. The rest of John chapter five goes on with this controversy between the Pharisees and Jesus, where Jesus essentially declares the authority that God's given him, and the Pharisees don't like that. <laughs> that upsets the Pharisees. It's, oh, it's worth it.
read, really, it is. I, I'm not going to go into it tonight, but I recommend kind of reading it on your own this week. We're just going to kind of stick with this first narrative and this question that's asked here. So there's some things to unpack, things we can learn, um, areas of our own lives I would love to try to press into. Um, but first, it's worth noting that Jesus asks this and then heals this man with no prerequisites at all. Like, he is healed without expressing any faith. He does nothing special um, to get Jesus' attention. There was a whole crowd of people who Jesus could have chosen. Jesus initiated, entirely initiated with him. And this man doesn't even know who Jesus is. So I would say this is a picture here of, of pure mercy and pure grace on the part of Jesus. For sure. And the question itself, do you want to get well? Seems a little bit like a self-evident one, doesn't it? Do you want to get well? Why would he not want to get well? I imagine being there and being like, Jesus, his legs. Like, he needs my help. You're welcome, Jesus. But it's a self-evident question. So we have to ask, why did, it, why did he ask it? What was it that he wanted the man to consider about himself and his situation? What do you think that this man had to think about? Clearly, there's a need for physical healing. That one's obvious in this case. But emotional healing was probably needed too. There's clearly something more going on that Jesus is trying to get at beyond the obvious. You know, when you've been doing something for 38 years... It's more than a habit. It's a deeply entrenched way of life. In this man's case, every experience of his life for nearly four decades is in the context of his disability. He knew nothing outside of it. He may have even gotten comfortable with life as he knew it. Or maybe he stopped considering that life could be any different for him. Many of us don't have obvious ailments, but we've got them. We've got them. Are you comfortable with life as you know it? Have you stopped considering that life could look any different? I mean, thinking about this man, he begged for money. Once he's healed, he no longer has that. I don't know. We don't know how old he is. We know he's at least 38. So what does he do for a career? Does he have any training? Now that he can work, does he have to work? This probably affected, definitely affected, how he would relate to people. If I'm not the charity, you know, kind of case, what am I? Or if I've only been the receiver of care, how do I move beyond that? We all have things like this. We all have things that we want healed, that we want restored, that we want to be healthy about us, but maybe we have a hard time parting with. You know, I think of examples of this. Smoking is maybe a clear example of this. It's an addiction. You know, I have a friend who's in nursing school who shared about someone who came in who has literally had a lung transplant. I didn't know they could do that. A lung transplant. New, fresh, pink lungs. Fresh start. And three years later, he's back in the hospital with the exact same thing. Or I have other friends, you know, especially who work in the healthcare professions who, who've seen people who know in their minds what's not good for them. But they just, they just can't, they just keep going back to that thing. Even if it's harmful, they still choose to go back there. Addiction is tough, really. 
is a daily battle. We cannot underestimate how hard of a battle that is to fight. And for those of you who are fighting addiction and beating addiction, we should be celebrating you like crazy. Seriously. But there are less obvious addictions too. You can be addicted to the gym or to work or to your money. And oftentimes we get praised for those. We get praised for those. When sometimes they can be just as detrimental to our souls. Or we can know in our minds we ought to spend less or get out of debt or eat better or quit the addiction. And it's easier just to say, tomorrow, tomorrow I will. Tomorrow I will. Tomorrow I'm going to start eating better. Pass the kale tomorrow, you know. Next month I'm going to get a gym membership. I'm going to go all the time. Next year is going to be the year that I get out of debt. Or even when we say things like someday, someday I'll restore my relationships, my broken relationships. It could be a whole host of things, and I don't know what that thing is for you. But I do know that sometimes the less obvious addictions or the less obvious patterns of behavior that are unhealthy, that can kind of go on under the surface without being detective, those can still become deeply rooted into our identity too in a harmful way. So for any of you who kind of can read this or hear this and you can't identify with this guy, <laughs> you should look again. Because if you think you're all set or you're good to go or you have it all figured out, you might have more serious problems. It could look like pride. That can be pride. We gotta be real careful with pride. Pride is dangerous. Pride is ugly. When we speak or act in a prideful way that says, I don't need help. I'm okay. I'm good. I can do it on my own. I don't want your pity. I can fix myself. I'll pick myself up by my bootstraps. Or I'm just not a vulnerable person. It could look all types of different ways, but that's pride. And the a pride is a tool of the devil. You know, Jesus literally said in the Gospels, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Literally, he is saying that if you cannot see the brokenness within yourself, I, I can't do anything for you. I did not come for you. That's no small thing. It is not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. Do you need a doctor today? You know, before uh, my husband Justin and I were in our roles here at Timberline, we worked in California with a ministry called Young Life, which we love and support and was hugely formative for us. But at Young Life, they have summer camps and they're the funnest. They're the most fun, Young Life summer camp. And over the course of five days, the gospel is presented in a really like strategic way. And it's beautiful and wild to see the way people respond to the gospel. It really, it really is. But the strategic messages, you know, there's one through creation and you're walking through the person of Christ and sin and the cross and resurrection. It's very strategic. And one of the messages is, is on need. It's just called need. It's all about talking about our need for a savior. And it was interesting because there'd be some groups of kids that would have a really hard time grasping this idea of need. Like they didn't really think that they needed a God all that much. And it's not often, not always, but there were kids from affluent areas who just never needed to depend on God. A lot of times that was them. And then there would be some groups of kids who you could just, you didn't even need it. You didn't even need, you didn't even need a need talk. Like you could skip that talk entirely because they knew they needed God. And often, not always, those were inner city kids. 
who'd seen crime or poverty, kids who'd experienced like real pain as young, you know, people. There are different sets of issues with both. I'm not trying, you know, there's a whole bunch of things going on there. But where are you at with that? Where are you at with your need for a savior today? To be dependent or desperate for him. It's not the healthy that need a doctor, it's the sick. Do you want to be made well? I want to talk for a moment about hope. What's your relationship with hope? Would you describe yourself as a hopeful person? Or would other people describe you as hopeful? What do you hope for? What are you longing for today? What do you put your hope in? Do you know? All these broken people in this account were at this pool, presumably because of this angel in the water, which feels like a very small shred of hope. But we see it in the response that's given to Jesus when this man is healed. Like, I don't have anyone to carry me into the water when it's stirred. Someone goes in before me. It sounds almost kind of like despair to me. But there's this hope that the pool is going to be stirred and that he's going to be picked up and he's going to be carried and he might be the first one in. Feels like a stretch. I don't know if I'd have been too hopeful there, but I just wonder. I wonder what hope was like at the pool. Or if people just watched, if they just hung around and watched and waited just for any shred of movement. If they focused their attention on the water. I don't know. But what are you focusing your attention on? today? What are you looking to, to fix you, to comfort you, to keep you safe or secure? Where are you taking control or making it happen or trying or pushing or running to get your needs met in places that are not Jesus? I don't know what comes to mind for you. Maybe it's your money or your job or your reputation or your family or your order or your physical health, or your relationships, or your marriage, or your schedule, or your addictions. I don't know. There are even good things that can become idols for us, that can take places in our life they were never intended to take. When a good thing becomes an ultimate thing for you, it can become a destructive thing. When good things become ultimate things, they become destructive things. You know, in Hebrews chapter 12, you know, verse 1 and 2, it says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. There are things that hinder us that are not overly sinful. Those two things are distinguished in this verse. Throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Jesus is the one who's worthy of our hope. So whatever you're hoping for, whatever you're longing for, may it never become larger than the hope you have in Jesus. And I hope you hear my heart in even saying that. Because I'm not saying that we shouldn't dream Goodness, no, that's not what I'm trying to say. We should be dreamers. We should be hopeful. We should be the biggest dreamers out there. Like, hopeful alongside Jesus, just not out of alignment with him. 
hopeful alongside Jesus, just not out of alignment with him. You guys with me on that? So to look back at the question, do you want to get well? When I was looking at the word well, you know, other meanings are also healthy and whole. Do you want to get healthy? Do you want to be made whole? So where in your life? What are areas that are unhealthy, that are unwell, that could be restored to wholeness? So I know it's some of the kind of same stuff, but each of us, are broken people in a broken world with broken tendencies. One out of one, 100% of us. And God is a good God who's restoring and refining us day by day. Another thing to know about me, um, I'm also a painter. I went to CSU, I studied visual art, got a degree, you know, almost printmaking and painting was kind of my wheel, it was kind of a thing. I actually have art up at Everyday Joe's right now. If you hop in there, that's kind of some of my paintings that are fun. It's kind of something, I wish I had more time to do it, I'm, but I love what I'm doing now. But anyway, I have a painting that I did want to show you. Oh yeah, this is one of my paintings. This is one of my most recent ones. It actually doesn't have a name. So if any of you guys have a really creative name for being like, that's the name, let me know. I might name it, you might, it might get named that. But when it comes to painting and my process of painting, I like to cover kind of the whole canvas with paint really fast. Kind of like really loose blueprints of where I'm going, but it's all, it's all covered. And then from there, I have a process of where I add and I'm changing and I'm switching and I'm scraping stuff off. And it's this process of layers where I change it and I add it and I change it and I scrape it and I add it. And sometimes I struggle. Like this painting, I was like, it's gonna be my whole life. I never finished that thing. It took forever because I just couldn't decide. I didn't know, when is it done? I have more, I have more. That's always a tricky thing for me. But I think some of us can be like that. Like God is working on us in layers, adding and scraping us off, scraping things off of us, getting to this end goal that he has in mind for us. It's probably a good end goal. (laughs) If we're still here, we still have work to be done. And the kingdom of God, which was the thing that Jesus talked about the most, about heaven coming to earth. It's all about restoration and redemption happening now. Kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven now. Where in your life are you unwell? What is God stirring in you? Is he convicting you? Is he disciplining you? Or is he adding or scraping stuff off? Where are you being refined. Do you know about the process of refining gold? It's fascinating. When they refine gold, they take gold and they boil it. And then all of the impurities come to the top and it's scraped off the top. And sometimes when we are refined, it can feel like that. Boiling and scraping. and ugh, Not comfortable. We prefer comfort. Stay with what I know. What I can control. How I like it. But without the refining, we miss out on the gold. We miss out on the gold. So what do we do? What do we do with that? Where do we go from here? What do we do to participate in God's restorative work in our life? You say, I want to be made well. Yes, I'm in for that. (laughs) What's next? I have a couple of thoughts. The first is to invite God to reveal the areas of your life that are broken. Invite God to reveal the areas of your life that are broken. 
because we might be totally unaware. You might be unaware of some of the tendencies that you have that are unhealthy. We need God to convict us and reveal what he would have for us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. So it's a scary prayer, but invite him. Ask God to reveal areas of your life that are broken. The next thing would be to get to a place where you're willing to surrender. To surrender your addictions or your comfort things. The places that you're putting your hope that are other than him. This one can be really hard. This is easy to say. You can sing or say, it's, it is hard to fully surrender. Another one would be to gather support and encouragement around you. It is vital to have people who really know you, who care about you, who can speak truth to you. So do you have people in your life who lovingly confront you out of deep concern for you in order to help you make positive changes in your life? Have you given people permission? Sometimes in our culture, we can be so nervous to offend someone that we don't actually tell the truth. Some of you are like, I have no problem with that. I shoot it straight. This is not for you. For those of us who feel, you know, you just feel nervous to offend, you feel nervous to say the things that are true, you don't want someone to be upset with you, we need to give people permission. I've given some of my closest people permission. Like, if I need correction, oh, correct me. If I'm acting like a fool, tell me. I regularly ask for feedback from some trusted people, and I try to regularly remind them to tell me the truth. And for me, that's not like a multitude. I'm not asking the masses for feedback. I'm asking a few trusted people. So have you given people permission? Or have you stepped into environments of correction? Kind of along those lines, I want to talk about counseling. Have you ever been to counseling? Have you ever been to see a trained therapist? If not, uh, why? There's a stigma about counseling. And it's, it honestly is pretty heartbreaking to me. A belief, maybe you have felt it or you know, seen it, that counseling are only for people who are a mess or who really need it, crazy people, extreme circumstances. I've seen people who feel embarrassed um, about needing or about going to counseling who just believe the stigma. But the stigma, I'm just letting you know, is just a flat out lie. It's just a straight up lie. Not to be overly dramatic here, but here's some drama for you. You know who benefits from you constantly living in a state of unhealth? It's the devil. Seriously. Of course, a goal of the devil would be to keep you from places that directly address and work to heal the broken areas in your life. Of course. To know about me, I go to counseling monthly. I'm actually obsessed with counseling. I'm so grateful for it. And my relationship with my counselor is seriously precious to me. I have experienced freedom and health, all of which I have uncovered personally in counseling. I'm a big, big fan of it. I basically tell everyone I know that they should be going. Y'all should be going. <laughs> Letting you know. Also, if you're a CSU student, I don't know if y'all are CSU students, just for the sake of telling it. If you're a CSU student, you can go to counseling six times in a semester for free and then 
It's $10 a month after that, or $10 a time a visit after that. It's a Chipotle burrito. Take advantage of that. That is awesome. And I would say you can ask for a Christian counselor. You can ask for someone who shares your worldview. Advocate for yourself. Ask questions about that. If money is the issue for you, or if money is what keeps you from counseling, you know, ask and see if your insurance has any benefits for that. Or ask you know, counseling offices if there's any scholarships or there's pay-what-you-can options. Many counseling offices offer that. And if you're in the space where you're like, I just can't find the right person. Like, you can be kind of picky about finding the perfect counselor. I get that to a degree, to a point. I do think it's vital to find wise counsel or to seek wise counsel when it's coming to the people who are speaking into our lives. So we have a whole list at Timberline of recommended counselors. I've printed it. I have copies. So if that's you, please come up, snag one of these. If you're not sure where to start, that might be a good place. We trust and recommend folks like this. And if you're, need, if you're in need of support for your marriage, do you know that we have a thing called marriage mentors here? We have marriage mentors, people who are available to be paired alongside you to walk with y'all in your marriage. You know, oftentimes we see people who come to us um, or to even go to counseling when they're seriously struggling. It's like the last stitch effort. Like it's the last Hail Mary. And then they come to counseling after so much damage has already been done. Don't wait until your marriage is being held together by a string to go get help. Go now. Go now. Consider it. Consider showing up, being open, being flexible. Give it a, give it a try. It's back to that question. Do you want to be made well? Let's pray together. Thank you, God, that you love us, that we are your children, and you want the best for us. You are a good father, and we are safe, and we are secure in your hands. You are trustworthy. Would you continue, God, to reveal your heart for us? Reveal what is broken, what you want to restore and refine within us. Give us the zeal, the empowerment, the confidence to do something about it. God, I pray that you would break us and bind us up, that you would pry and release our tight grips on some of the things that are broken in our lives, that we might look more like you, Jesus. Yeah, and I just pray that we might be more, that we might fully know and fully believe how worthy you are of our lives, God. Every single part of it would love you. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys.